everybody, and welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elana Levin, and this is Graphic Policy, where comics and politics meet. Uh, you know, the show is also the podcast where comics and music meet. Even before I got into comics back in junior high, I was a massive music obsessive from like literally the age of two. Um, I am always really interested in the intersection of music and comics. I, I actually hosted a, a panel at uh, New York Comic Con last year. Uh, called Sandman Made Me Goth and other things I learned from reading comics. Because I think that for me, um, I was always super excited to see the combinations of things I loved combined in different forms of media. But also, you know, as I got older and started developing more awareness about music beyond the stuff that my parents exposed me to, uh, a lot of the ways that you would find out about things would be by through finding it in other forms of popular culture. And that was always a significant thing for me. And so one day, there I am on Twitter, Ilana underscore Brooklyn. I'm sure most of you follow me there. And I stumbled upon Matt Perpetua, who I was aware of his critical work, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a music writer, but I did not know he was also a massive X-Men fan. <laughs> and that is when I knew someday I would need to have him on my show. And this is that day. So joining me for this episode is Matt Perpetua. Matt is the sole writer of the independent music site Fluxblog since 2002, more recently expanding beyond the site itself to playlist curation on Spotify. In fact, the playlist that he just posted with also former guest on the show, Shanti Collins, uh, uh, that's like an introduction to industrial music is flawless. And I can tell you that because I know about industrial music. So definitely go check out his playlists. In addition to the site, uh, Matt has also contributed to Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, NPR, and New York Magazine, and was the founding editor of BuzzFeed Music. In his parallel career, he was the director of quiz content at BuzzFeed for six years and currently works as a consultant focusing on strategy and user experience for quizzes and AI. And I should probably talk to you about work at some point, come to think of it. Right now, <laughs> Matt is doing a side project where he's writing about Jonathan Hickman's X-Men as it is published. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about this moment. I was almost, when you said, what did you want to talk about today? I was like overwhelmed. I was like, everything. <laughs> but uh, why don't we get started actually by how, how did you get into comics as a reader? Uh, very young, probably around the time I was like five or six, I would start getting comics at the, uh, the, dro uh, the local pharmacy and sort of random. I think like a lot, I think the earliest stuff I ever picked up was Star Wars simply because I was into Star Wars being like five years old in 1985. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but pretty quickly got into X-Men. I started reading, uh, Chris Claremont's X-Men around, I think like late 85, early 86. Like I know the issue that I bought first, which was uh, 207, which has that cover where, where you see like Wolverine like slashing in the cover. It's by uh, John yeah. Romita Jr. Mm -hmm. um, and that is an extremely dark issue that I came in on. But you know, I think that whole era, because that's kind of entering into like the mutant massacre. So it's like that's kind of like where my expectations are formed. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think a lot about how um, like probably the two most formative stories for me in childhood, uh, the stories that I kind of like reenacted in my head a million times over, was basically mutant massacre era X Men and <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back. So Whoa. I was conditioned for heroes losing, like from a very early age. Um, so <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, was that compelling to you or was it like a coincidence? 
I think it was just a coincidence, but also just, like, I guess it just resonated with me as a kid. Mm. Like, when I was a child, like, I would, because I had, like, all the Star Wars toys, like most kids my age did. Yep. Um, I'm your age, I, so you can the speak thing for I, me the as thing well. I would, the thing I would do <laughs> would just be, like, endlessly reenact the uh, the scene where Han Solo is putting carbonite with, like, aluminum foil. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, that's amazing. Um I mean, like, given how young you were when you began reading comics, is that, like, kind of how you literally learned to read? Uh, I think to some extent, certainly, like, reading, like, above reading level. Yeah, exactly. I, I know that, like, I started reading, like, very young, around the time I was three. And I have an older half-brother, <laughs> and I kind of learned while they were teaching him to read. He's a few years older than me. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I was reading very early and... Uh, Man, I, I, <laughs> I think about it now because, like, when, when I, like, reread those old Claremont comics, like, they're, like, pretty sophisticated and, like, his vocabulary is at a pretty high level. And, like, it's it's kind of strange to realize, like, I was reading all that stuff very young. And, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I gravitated, that I gravitated to when I was very young uh, in comics. Uh, so, like, so I guess like around by the time I'm, like... 11 10 or 11 i'm pretty heavy into like the keith giffen uh legion and justice league <laughs> and also wow. like grant morrison's yeah. doom patrol um oh my god you read doom patrol like when like when i was 11? 11 12 yeah like when it when it i i i, I kind of came into it like halfway through right uh, um but yeah i was there like when it ended i think it ended in 93 mm-hmm. i want to say and mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I I mean, I imprinted like real hard on New Patrol, especially like all the Cliff and Jane stuff. That's just like in my head forever. So, do you watch the TV show? I've seen the first couple episodes. I don't because I didn't have like the DC yeah subscription service, and now because I have a Roku, I can't watch HBO Max. So I watched the three episodes they put on YouTube, and it was a lo- like a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was actually like quite good, and I mm-hmm. I liked. I liked the ways they updated certain things. Um, I wasn't like into their Jane, but maybe their Jane gets better as it goes along. Well, the actress is tremendous. Um, so I, I think eventually maybe that would, it would work for you in some way. Yeah. There, there's like all these like little things I, I like about it. I really like that they made, uh, I mean, I definitely will always prefer Rebus to, I guess, a general negative man. I, I like mm-hmm. the hermaphroditic cosmic entity person. Yeah. But um, I like that they made Larry kind of a closeted gay man. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I like the way they did Rita far. Uh, yeah. It was, I think the, the, the one thing I didn't care for was I didn't like how they did Mr. Nobody in visual terms. I mm-hmm. felt like the ideal thing they should have done was had that be just like a, like a 2d animated cartoon character who just kind of walked into scenes. Oh, cool. That would have been cool. I'm, I'm always pro there being more 2d animation layered on top of film. Yeah, so, it would have like, like just something like a little more Roger Rabbit would have been fantastic. Right. Like right. having it be like a little too special effectsy and needing to have like uh, it was Alan Tudyk's face in it. It's like, uh, all right, but like they, they they from what I've seen, like the they write that pretty well. So yeah, they do. Oh, I'm going to be covering. Well, we've got, I've covered Stupid Patrol twice on the show, and we're going to be covering season. Uh, two in the next episode I'm taping, but um, but yeah, I I didn't read New Patrol until pretty recently, actually. Um, although I'd always wanted to, but um, I I really think the show is excellent, 
And uh, it's funny though, because my, my one of my first guests who was on to talk about it was someone is is non-binary, and like Rebus was a really big deal for them. Oh and yeah, and they were definitely like, I'm glad there's a different non-binary character, but like this, but Rebus was cool as a thing itself, and now it's sad to not have it, Rebus be done the, the same way. But you know, they also liked the show broadly and agreed. Like, if you're gonna, I mean, basically, you got you got a. Uh, Larry Trainer is Hal Jordan as a horror story of a personal and scientific level is basically their yeah. take on it. And that's pretty resonant. So I, I was thinking of this recently, how like just a lot of the media that I had as as, as a pretty young kid, like had a lot of like uh gay and lesbian characters, like trans characters in it. Like that's also the case for the Giffen Legion of Superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um like it's, Definitely, there's lots of ways where it's like more progressive than things were for like at least a solid two decades after they came out. Yeah. Uh, those comics, I mean, um, yeah. And then I think also I think about like, oh yeah, when I was growing up, there was like a lot of people like who worked at the, the tiny high school I went to, who were all like, in retrospect, obviously gay and lesbian uh, people who. In retrospect, oh, I think they're I think they're a bi- uh, non-binary. I, I don't know how they would identify, but they were certainly like in that general uh, ambiguous zone. Mm-hmm. So all this mm-hmm. stuff was like super normalized for me, like by the time I was like twelve or thirteen. And I don't think that's really had like an impact on me beyond it just not being ever like an issue to me. Mm-hmm. It's always just been like, yeah, this this, this exists. You know? uh, where, where where did you grow up? I grew up in the Hudson Valley. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, a, that makes sense. <laughs> a town called Cold Spring. Um, yeah. Oh, the, the, the ice cream place. Oh, I, I get, is it the one that's a depot or is it something new? No, it's like, I don't know if it's new or old, but it's like we, we went there at the end of a hike and there was like a line out the door. Huh. Uh, yeah. I mean, the my, the town I grew up in uh, has changed a lot over the past maybe 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I grew up like that and the next town over Beacon were definitely super yeah. working class towns. And like my dad grew up there like he spent his like literally his entire life there like born lived and died there um so like i'm really from like towny stock there mm-hmm. um but yeah it's just a it's largely like italian catholic working class people and like the town's now you know definitely like been more like uh gentrified yuppified over time i mean mm-hmm. that was like starting around the time i was like a teenager but yeah, now like I, the last time I was there, because like my my mom uh, sold the house that I grew up in a couple of years ago. So the last time I was there, a couple was a couple of years ago, and just going up there and visiting it and being like, oh, this is this like this is actually much more like where I live now than where I, <laughs> how I grew up. It's definitely more like a, a gentrified Brooklyn zone. So that how did you get into? Uh, underground music of you know whatever stripe it was that you first found an interest in. Um, hard to say. I mean, I think like this be the nature of growing up like around the early nineties, a lot of things that, uh, were kind of alternative or indie or whatever, were kind of entering the mainstream were pretty accessible Mm -hmm. via MTV. Um, so I think that was a lot of my earliest exposure. Um, like my entry into music, like as in like a kind of a more like involved way came around like that came through the things like U2 and REM and Pearl Jam, Mm -hmm. which were like just full on mainstream. Mm -hmm. And from there, it wasn't really like a huge leap to go to Sonic Youth, which is I think one of the first big things and like pavement. 
Um, hmm. So I think, like, for me, one of the things... There wasn't really like a big distinction between those things at the time. It wasn't as obvious that there was like an actual disparity. Like a, it just seemed like a level playing ground industry wise. Like I remember like being like fully confused why pavement wasn't getting as big as Nirvana. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's like where I was at as a teenager in this kind of a you know a relatively. Uh, level playing ground with like the things that were famous and less famous or uh and i was i got into like reading music magazines like relatively young too probably around like 92 93 so i I just kind of like would just kind of get a lot of my cues from that especially spin and cmj yeah oh my god my mom just tried to unload a lot of my archives on me the other day and i was like oh, some of these are probably worth something, but I can't deal with this right now. <laughs> yeah, pro- probably to people like me, because I, I, not so much in the past, like, several months, but, like, certainly last year, I went through this whole phase of just buying lots of magazine lots off eBay. Um, like, I mean, I have, like, a... I have most issues of Rolling Stone from... I guess like the early seventies through the mid nineties. No point. shit. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. But, and you can just generally buy them in like these lots where you just get like an entire year or two at a time. Um, I mean, there's definitely holes in the, in the, uh, the collection, but like, it's like, I have a majority, a solid majority of it. Wow. Um, and I was also got really heavy into collecting this magazine called after dark, which is this amazing, uh, I mean, it wasn't, like, necessarily written into it, but it was definitely, like, a gay magazine, Mm -hmm. uh, a gay arts magazine. And it's just, like, um, it's truly outstanding. Like, they would... And it's just kind of, like... It's mostly through the 70s. Like, the only... The issues that are good are in the 70s. Like, I remember getting some issues from the 80s, and they they really sucked. Because I think they changed ownership, and it became much more of a square magazine. Mm -hmm. But the issues in the 70s are amazing. It's exactly what you want... Uh, I mean, just in terms of this advertising, the photography, what they cover, just the general point of view. It is a real time capsule of like a queer cosmopolitan 70s. I I appreciate old ads as well. I I will never quite get past there was an ad in like what year would have been probably like 1972, 73 issue of Playboy that was like, is this Andy Warhol telling you what? stereo system to buy and the ad is completely like look i know he's gay but you should definitely listen to his opinion on stereo <laughs> systems and i'm just like this is amazing um yeah no, i know i i grew up reading a ton of new journalism and th- therefore i've read a lot of old rolling stone um so uh that's really interesting i um i guess you have an attraction to physical media i would yeah yeah I'm, I'm i'm 220th century that way <laughs> it's really only just a storage problem problem. I don't think it's a problem otherwise. Yeah. You know, and my, my, my I had definitely, my apartment is like mainly like records and books and magazines. That's largely what it is. And, and clothes. That's largely the, the composition of it. Highly flammable. Duly noted. Yeah. Keep everything safe. Um, so when it, was there, was there music that you ever got into through comics or, or vice versa? I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm going to, I don't really think so. And I think like for the longest time, like there was this real like division between the two things. And I didn't necessarily see like them in like 
conversation with each other. Um, though, like, I guess, like, Grant Morrison would kind of get some music references into mm-hmm. things, but it wasn't really, like, stuff I was actively investigating. I think, like, the the, the there's probably more of an off-ramp into, like, visual art, uh, because through, certainly through Doom Patrol, I got into things like uh, Situationism and uh, a lot of, and Dada and, like, that that kind of, like, avant-garde art from the 20th century and that kind of led me into like reading a a lot of books that kind of really pushed me towards going to art school which I did Mm -hmm. um so yeah I I think there was more of a a direct line to that I mean in my experience like a lot of the people who do comics they don't necessarily have like necessarily and it's not always like they have bad taste in music but it's not really like interesting taste in music Mm-hmm. So, you know, it'll come up here and there, but like for the most part, I find it's there's there's not really like the a lot of overlap. And and I think there's also times where like the comics that are kind of like we're making a comic about music or this is about rock and roll or like I, I always end up hating them. <laughs> and there's a lot of like narcissism of small difference stuff that kind of goes into that. But I mean, I I think the one big outlier is I really like the way Brian Lee O'Malley does music in the Scott Pilgrim mm. books. I feel like he just really gets something about it. And it's partly because he's also like very funny about it. I think when there's definitely times where I can see stuff where it's like, oh, this person's like tr- desperately trying to tell you he's the cool nerd. And I find that sort of tragic. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think like, I guess like the main two comics where I think I hear uh, for folks our age, like where I hear about sort of hearing about music through comics is either Sandman or uh, Love and Rockets, basically. Oh, yeah. I mean, both of those things, which I came to like relatively late. I'm actually just now reading Sandman in its entirety because I only oh. ever read it like in like random pieces. So, yeah, like I my friend gave me as a gift, like the whole set of the trade paperbacks. So now I'm like reading it actually in order and I'm kind of at uh, the fourth volume, Season of Mists right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I never got to read Sandman in order. Like I kind of discovered it near the, you know, closer towards the, probably like 93, 94, but like it definitely got me into goth. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like like right at that. But you know, um, and I actually wasn't a Love and Rockets kid. I just know that for a lot of folks that was, I was more likely to see the Hernandez brothers art on like a poster or an album that I was going to like listen to than it was to be the other way around. But I definitely know what you mean though, in terms of like a lot of stuff that is supposed to be about rock and roll doesn't actually grasp the rebellion of it. But I also sometimes feel like there's- Oh, sometimes I think they lean too hard on the rebellion of it. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. It's always like some part of it that and it, it, it sometimes makes sense, especially when you're kind of like grafting it onto, like, say, superhero uh, fiction and, and the kind of the sort of mythologies and trying to like draw connections between these, these two things. It, it makes sense, but um, I don't know. I, I, I think this the where my taste in music goes probably overlaps more with like indie stuff where they probably would not so much like 
have it be about music so much as like you would just see someone wearing like a, a t-shirt in the background or something. Right. Like, right. like but I'll, that could be enough. Like, I'm thinking of like, like Evan Dorkin stuff, like the, <laughs> the milk and cheese and all, all yes. that stuff. Like, like that would kind of have that in there. Like I wasn't really like that into Peter Bag, but like that's another good example. Kind of like like 90s hipster comics, basically. You know, Milk and Cheese is a good example, though, of like seeing something on a T-shirt and being like, oh, I wonder if that's a band and then trying to figure out if that was a band. Yeah. Like that's that's definitely a thing that happened. I'm sure for me. I can't I can't say specific what it was, but that sounds entirely probable. It's it's funny, like the 90s really has that element to it. And I guess by the the, uh, 80s and 70s before it, where like a lot of like music just kind of exists as like T-shirts or like a an ad in a magazine mm. or, you know, just like these reference points. I mean, I, you just mentioned like the industrial uh, playlist that Sean Collins and I made. Mm-hmm. And that's for me, like almost all of that music growing up, that, that was just like, I, I would see those things in t-shirt catalogs and uh, yeah, I, I, I just did not really investigate it because, you know, I, I think a, a subtext to that thing that Sean and I made is like, we've been talking for a very long time. Like, because Sean definitely grew up as an industrial kid, and I grew up definitely more as an indie and alternative rock kid. And in the nineties, like those were just like very separate tribes. Yes, there was they a were. very there was a very <laughs> there was a very hard line of taboo of crossing those lines. Um, and yeah, I, I, a lot of that industrial thing. I mean, the, the the curation element of that was largely Sean, and I I kind of. Did a lot. Of, I I was more involved on sequencing and mm. like choosing some songs in some cases because we decided on a record and I would just kind of figure out the song that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that's largely Sean's uh, curation there, and that's like his huge part of his life and identity, um, and just wanting to create something that people can kind of jump in on and like one of the things. So I'm doing all these playlists and. Part of it is engaging specifically with Spotify as an, kind of an ecosystem. And mm-hmm. I find like a lot of playlists are just awful. And like, but they'll <laughs> have like thousands and thousands of followers simply through, uh, you know, this search optimization. <laughs> they'll, they'll, right. it'll, it'll simply just be a playlist called industrial. Right. And they'll be, and they'll be incoherent. They'll just be like inco- incoherent in like time terms. Like the the chronology of it will just be completely scrambled or too focused on the present or like you just can't really get any like sense of history from them. So I really do focus a lot on history and timeline and getting a sense of like uh, I, I've I guess for the past like ten fifteen years I just have this increasing obsession with understanding chronology of things but also just like the chronology of things and how they overlap and relate to each other to mm-hmm. other parts of culture there's a very uh what's the word i'm looking for here just kind of very uh holistic approach to this so like when i was doing all the playlists that were just kind of like here's all the things that happened in this given year like that was just trying to understand like how things were relating to each other in those terms and now i'm more interested in kind of uh aesthetics and the kind of mapping out aesthetics Hmm. Well, I really appreciate it. And I mentioned this to you. I was listening to some of the ones from the late 60s and 
that you included some really good picks from international, sorry, but from countries that don't speak English music, because uh, I feel like for the purposes of rock music, yeah. saying international. Well, I, remember, I think when you said this, like you're pointing out the Jamaican music and like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was very excited about seeing a lot of Jamaican music pro- properly included in the 60s pieces because Americans are super ignorant about it and especially don't know anything about ska and it makes me angry. Um, and I yell about it on the internet a lot. So it made me yeah. happy to see that included there. Um, it's interesting you said about the chronology about the chronology piece in terms of putting them together. Um, I think that is useful for educational tool. I I had a friend tell me that they actually didn't really know what metal was. So I made them a playlist of metal and each song I did was based on when the song was released, Mm. like not when the band came to be, you know, and it, it was, well, one, my husband was like really able to just recall shit without me if I having to time check it. Like I would cross check it, be like, hey, which when does this one fall? And he would tell me and he would be right like nine out of 10, which was crazy to me. But um, I think like in an educational sort of pedagogical way, having the chronology of like when the songs are released, et cetera, can be really helpful for folks. But then you're kind of butting up against the question of, yeah, like what, what, what do you want to have go next to each other in terms of showing the connections of different things stylistically? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the ones I do now, like they have like a a time range, but within that range, the sequencing is all over the place just mm-hmm. so it's like listenable. Right. Um, and then there's just also just like, uh, you know, ways you can kind of like do some sort of narrative through sequencing uh, sometimes in like subtle ways. But yeah, I, I, just giving people like a sense, like this is this is the time period, like things. In, I mean, part of it's also just to kind of have like these boundaries, so like the things don't spiral out of control. And you're just throwing like more and more in. A lot of these things end up being like pretty long, and just anything you can do to make them shorter is for the best. Yeah, we're hard, it's hard to self-edit when it comes to having an almost endless ability to add songs to things. Yeah. I, although coming to a point you brought up earlier about, um, you know, uh, in, indie fans and like rivet heads in the 90s and like never the twain shall meet. I, <laughs> that was very much how it was in the scene, you know, that I grew up in the D.C. area. Um, and the, the goth and industrial scene was the same scene, despite the fact that the music is not the same, although liking one is, you know, not. It, it makes it not surprising that you would like the other. Oh yeah, it's not I mean it's a, it's a comorbidity for sure. It's kind of Thank like you, you know, like you can be indie yes. person and also a shoegaze person, or also a punk. Oh, person. very much. Yeah, yeah. But you know, but the but the thing is, like, I heard from people in other parts of the country, and like metalheads and like industrial folks would do. I was like, no, we would not talk to metal people, and like, in in retrospect, you're sort of like, wow, there's all kinds of fucked up class implications about that. Um, but, uh, despite the fact that like tons of people who are working class or poor were in the goth industrial scene, there was, the goth industrial scene was not about like celebrating a working class aesthetic in any way, shape or form. Um, so I was sort of like, in retrospect, this is highly problematic. But at the time it was like, no, we do not talk to those people who like guitar solos. That is for idiots actually. (laughs) Um, and so it's interesting, but, but the thing is, sorry, but the point I was trying to make. I've always been more into goth than industrial. And so when I would go to a club and they'd be playing and they're playing industrial music way more than goth because more of it is easy to dance to. Yeah. And I kind of was like resentful of how much industrial there would be. And so now 
as an adult who can play whatever obscure goth song I want whenever I want to, going to the playlist and seeing all these great industrial songs, like I used to dance to this, I used to dance to that, feels very different because when I can have whatever I want whenever I want it, then I don't, I don't need to say like, oh my God, this is too much industrial music. So I listen to more industrial music now by choice than I did when I was younger by choice, if that makes any yeah. sense. Do you like divide them as much now as you did then? In terms of what I'm in a mood like, for, or or, yeah. or or just like seeing them as kind of like these like two different nations as opposed to like maybe like oh, two different regions of the no, same thing. No, no, no. Well, because the thing is, over time, it's just sort of like become like any sort of vaguely heavy music. People sort of regard it as being in the same sort of bucket. And but and 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 and, and, and um, but I don't think I'm ever like you know jumping into the the car with me a husband or whatever and saying like okay i want to listen to like goth and metal and industrial like they're not they don't they're, they're different foods in my head and i i'm not generally but i'd make you a playlist that had all three yeah. of them do you know what i mean yeah so, so i have a question uh back in that era i guess the 90s maybe into the early aughts mm -hmm. like what like alt or indie stuff could cross ah, over yes, into your world this is very very good question so um very little. Jesus and Mary Chain is sort of like, a, is this industrial? Is this shoegaze? It is shoegaze, but people would listen to them. Um, uh, Could this match in pumpkins? Because they, no, they would veer into no, that direction? No, no. And when that one song came out, like Bullet with, Ava Bullet with oh. Butterfly Wings, and like people would try to like put that into, like the media was sort of saying like, look at this gothy industrial thing. We were like, no, it's not. Go away. That's mainstream. Man, that's like, not even the, the right song on that record. Well, I don't know that record. Like, I was never yeah. into Smashing Pumpkins. I feel like, like, like XYU, like, there's definitely songs that veer, like, more clearly into industrial and metal on that record. Like, there's, like, full-on, like, super harsh metal songs on that record. No, that I, record, think I mean, that album's like, all over the place. Okay. There's 28 songs. Whoa, that is long. Yeah, no, Melancholy, the media, Infinite I, Sadness. The, I mean, the media basically album. was like, this song has the word vampire in it, and therefore you vampire kids should like it. And we're Insulting. like, that's not how this works. That's Insulting. not how this works. <laughs> so I, it's funny, though, but you meant the much Smashing, Smashing Pumpkins, because like a lot of people are like, who I, from, a lot of my Twitter friends are like, Ilana, like, what do you think of Smashing Pumpkins? And I'm like, I think like literally nothing. So I guess I should probably like listen to them. Or yeah, something. certainly yeah. the 90s version okay. of the Pumpkins. I mean, well, I mean, I, I was kind of expecting you to kind of like mention Adore because that's the record after that from like 1998. And that's like the one that is overtly goth and overtly industrial. No, no, uh, no, no, no. I mean, when I was when I was young and like we're talking like 13 and like people were like just starting to get into this music. I felt like there was a bit more of like a, you know, like uh, you, you, ministry was sort of like metal people and industrial people, you know, or like prong. Like there was a little bit more, you know, tool, like there was a little bit more stuff that both would be interested in. But as time went on, I feel like the barrier was less permeable. And what's interesting to me is that now in the year 2020, like there's no, there seems to be like no, no boundary between anything at all no, anymore. Not at all. Um, and that's well, so wild. Well, it's to the point where people can't really identify genre anymore because they no. don't really have the reference points for it. So something can be like very obviously a rock thing, but they don't really hear it as it. Like, I mean, the I, the most hmm. obvious example is like Taylor Swift is a is a rock star. She makes rock music and kind of always has. Hmm. Um, like sometimes it's more soft rock, sometimes more folk rock, but like she's like 
a generally a rock person. And, you know, her new record is more like an indie rock record or it's more like a, you know, there's more of a country rock thing and some other things. But it's like, it's all rock. It's like the word, like people have trouble seeing like what is rock now because they've, there's been this uh, narrative for a long time now that like, oh, people don't like rock music anymore. It's dead. But it's like, no, we just categorize it to death so no one can really see like what it is on like this very broad level. And hmm. like, this is, this is like a huge, like, thing for me that I, I really can get off on for yeah, a, a, no, because I, it, it, it drives me crazy and it, it really and it's it's born of a lot of problems in, in rock music kind of like what mm-hmm. we were kind of getting into just now where you know people like will just have like this super super uh niche tribalism yeah. and like it's all basically rock music but it's like no this is mine and the people like these are the, like and as that's kind of uh become less a part of culture like there's still all these remnants of it uh of things being like hyper segregated and it's all from this kind of gatekeeper mentality and like rock music i mean this kind of goes back long ways too just going into like the 60s and 70s even mm-hmm. uh where you just kind of have like this increasing gatekeeper mentality and tribal mentality and you know you look at it parallel to uh r&b r&b as a, a, a bro- another like broad uh, big umbrella kind of musical genre where you look at like the rm stuff that you consider r&b in 1961 so mm-hmm. if you consider r&b in 1968 stuff you'd consider r&b in 1975 uh 1980 1987 1993 you know and so on it's they're like ra- they're radically different completely like, the, different. like the music changes so dramatically but people don't ever look at me like oh that's not r&b i think maybe mm-hmm. pure like you, you would have that on a purist level but like in the, in the broad sense of how people engage with music all of this gets to be the same music and Mm -hmm. there's also the racial element of it because like a lot of this stuff was always just called race music or black music and it would just be like well you're black well this is all the same thing ultimately and you know now that would kind of be split maybe like two or three ways as opposed to just Mm -hmm. one but yeah it's still it's it's the thing where it's like like why do these white people get to have like this like super niche identities but the the black music you know, I don't know. I guess you can kind of see it two different ways, right? You can look at like how the black music is treated as like, why aren't you doing more to acknowledge uh, these as being separate offshoot genres? And then on the white rock music end of it, it's like, why are why can't you acknowledge this is the same thing? Right, and, and that I think that on the white on the white the white listenership piece of it, it's like, hey, what if I told you there was a ton of '60s rock music that you've never listened to before? Well, there is, it's just made by black people. Like, and that's, that's the piece that they're like, folks are just really missing because the stuff that brings R&B into being more separate from rock music is like the kinds of production used that didn't even happen until much later. Yeah. So like, oh, you like the Rolling Stones? Guess what? Right. Like that's, that's really the. And a a lot of that comes out of the. The, the people who programmed radio in the yeah. 70s and certainly, especially in the 80s and 90s, is this being like racist and just being like, mm-hmm. okay, we can't, ha- we can't have this in here. This doesn't belong together uh, purely on like racial terms. And like, there would be like outliers like Lenny Kravitz, but otherwise, yeah. um, it, like <laughs> uh, uh, rock music ostensibly uh, 
coming from black music, but then people, it becomes like a white music. It's almost like fully surrendered on, on these broad cultural terms to white people. Well, um, that's one of the reasons I love that you guys have stuff from Public Enemy and in the industrial mix, because there are specific songs by Public Enemy that absolutely should be on an industrial mix. Yeah, that, that was uh, that was Sean's idea. And he was absolutely right. Because like the, yeah. the difference between the Bomb Squad and like Ministry or uh, a lot of those other people like are where like uh, Trent Reznor would go maybe a few years later. Um, it's, it's the same music. It's, it's the yeah. same like abrasive approach to uh, using uh, electronic music of, and sampling. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think industrial kind of at its root is really just people looking at these, this new technology of synthesizers and samplers and being like, well, we can make something really abrasive with it. We can make something really dark with it. Mm-hmm. And, that's basically the main difference between that and synth pop is the synth pop is just like the just using it for different means or like the, the way it would end up being used in uh r&b at the time like once like a good example like uh terry lewis and jimmy jam like when they were making like janet jackson records like mm-hmm. it's the same tools uh maybe a lot a lot less guitar in yeah. some cases, but you know, the guitar is kind of like not the point for industrial most of the time. No, that's just, really this is one way to just make it heavier. Yeah. I mean, but also some of the differences just change in time. Right. Like I, I don't identify as a person who's interested in pop music, but if I'm like out and about and like in a, like in a karaoke context or whatever, and like somebody is putting on like Janet Jackson, I'm like really happy about that. And at when at the time I was like, eh, this doesn't really do it for me. But now I'm like, oh, that's so much better than contemporary pop music. Please continue to play <laughs> the Janet Jackson, um, you know. And it's like it's like sort of shocking to me how much I've been like, oh, like a lot of '90s R&B really does work for me after all, um, because relative to contemporary things, it it, it is closer. To, yeah, <laughs> to what well, I, I mean, like. the, 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 especially the 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 rhythm nation and uh, the, rhythm, oh, uh, the rhythm so nation good. album by Janet Jackson. Like, there is mm-hmm. only it that is only like a marginal difference from where industrial is at the exact same time, like circa yeah. eighty nine. Um, in some ways, like that record's a lot heavier than like you know it's the same year as Pretty Hate Machine, and that mm-hmm. record is a lot more synth pop than that record is like the mm. uh, rhythm nation has a lot more like heaviness to it. Like there's, I mean, there's that one overt metal song, uh, black cat, but just, just in the pro the production, just in the, the programming, it's, it is a super industrial heavy record and they used industrial uh, visuals. I mean, honestly, yes. I should go, I should go back in there and throw in something from rhythm nation. Cause it's not, yeah, I, it's not too it. far off from it, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely for Rhythm Nation. I mean, but I guess the, but, but to the earlier point though, about like how the subcultural and genre differences is not a thing now as much as it was so important to self-definition when we were younger. I mean, like the positive side of those boundaries going away is like a more integrated, racially integrated form of music, um, music understanding going on. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, gatekeeping really dissolving a great deal. I think the one, the one negative of these understandings is you find a lot of people who don't know anything about the history of the music that they listen to, who, if they were still approaching music from a genre driven way, 
would know that music's history because if you wanted to hear more things like it, you'd have to go back in time to hear it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, cause there was, there would, there was only so much of genre X and you were definitely going to go back to hear the earlier version of genre X. But if you don't recognize what genre is, I think you're like less likely to go and see some of the older influences, which I think can be a real loss. Like there was a little bit of like a, a pop goth revival that was happening you know, what was what are they calling it? Like witch wave or like whatever the fuck. Oh yeah. You know? And then, then there's like other stuff like uh oh what's her name? I'm blanking her name. But yeah, there, there's there's been I mean, goth never really goes away. No. It just like takes different forms or it has like the level of popularity kind of goes up and down. But um, like my my, uh, my uh, asshole uh, point I was gonna make about <laughs> it though was that I found from those conversations with folks making that music, how many of them really didn't like know who Joy Division or Bauhaus were, and that kind of broke me. Wow, like, it broke me t-shirts. on a deep intellectual level. I'm like, how is this possible? Sorry. <laughs> I'm sh- certainly they've seen a Joy Division T-shirt at some point, but they don't. You know what? They don't usually say Joy Division on them. No, they <laughs> famously they don't. Uh, yeah, but yeah. um, but you know, but that was just, but that that to me was what I was sort of like. I'm sad because I feel like you would like this if you knew it, and um, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't want <laughs> yeah, to be that's, the that's basically old my whole life. Going back to what I was saying before, was like, why yeah. don't people know Pavement? Like that's like that's like the guiding impulse of so much of my life is like. Oh man, if you just knew this, you'd like it. Let me show you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we become critics, right? Like for comics and music, like we like love these things so deeply, and we want to share that with people. Yeah, that that's always been my main interest. Um, uh, it's funny, like uh, kind of a, a person kind of who kind of connects both comics and music is Douglas Walk, and Douglas Walk is a really formative influence on me. Like he was uh, one of the first critics I really paid attention to by name, mm-hmm. and like a real guiding. Uh, mission for him and he's articulated this somewhere it may have actually been in his first uh, book about comics but the idea that like the job of the critic is to kind of like help you understand something better is to like you know to kind of make you uh, look at art from a different angle so it's kind of additive to your experience of it and that's certainly how I've tried to approach it like even beyond like okay like you should hear this just kind of like trying to give people who already know things like something else like new Mm -hmm. context or just a new way Mm -hmm. of a new angle on it uh all the stuff i like most in terms of critical writing do that like like my friend rob sheffield is extremely good at that so how did you begin writing about music um professionally like how did you become a critic well, I started doing my site Flux Blog around the time I was uh, 21, 22. Um, it's like uh, 2002. And I did that for a couple years, like in, largely in obscurity, but then it started kind of catching on around late 03. And like I got like a lot of press and attention for a little while from like 2004, 2005, uh, just for being like one of the first people doing this MP3 blog thing that, that became, uh, you know, a big focus of attention for a little while. Um, and from there I started getting opportunities and offers to write things professionally. And so I did, cause I was, I didn't have a job. <laughs> so I was like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, I'll take, I'll do something for money. Cause I think at that time, even though I was literally writing like pretty much every day of the week, uh, because I came out of art school and was kind of in this kind of crossroads of figuring out what to do, uh, and also kind of in the the midst of a, a pretty bad recession, people kind of forget yeah. that there's like pretty severe recessions through the aughts, the early aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I mean, and honestly, we didn't have the ACA folks either. So like we like didn't even have insurance. No, it was awful. Like the post 9-11 uh, one was really bad. And then, yeah. you know, you could, I mean, God, I think about my whole life. It's just got a series of recessions, you know, like there's a huge recession in the, in the early nineties. So, mm-hmm. you know, that had a huge impact on my family and, you know, it's just, it's, yeah, it's kind of a never-ending cycle that kind of gets worse and worse. Anyway, that's that's a whole other topic. But um, oh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, but yeah, I started uh, getting some opportunities to write. And I think the first like really big thing that actually kind of pushed me towards like a professional thing was uh, Dan Coyce, who currently is at Slate, but was mm-hmm. one of the founding editors of Vulture, uh, the New York Magazine imprint. Uh, he had to go on some kind of sabbatical, I think, to either maybe one of his children was born or maybe he was writing a book. I can't remember which it was, but I didn't know Dan at all. But he just approached like, hey, do you want to like sub in for me for like a month or so? It's like, yeah, yeah. So like, I, I was just doing that every day for like a couple months or so, whatever it was. And I was mm-hmm. just became like a substitute teacher at Vulture for a few years and, you know, I, I started work writing stuff for Pitchfork. I was writing, I had like a, a regular thing with uh, MTV, like some project that didn't work out, but that was like a steady job for a while. And hmm. uh, the Associated Press, like I, I just kind of picked up a bunch of experience for a while. And uh, yeah, that it was sort of a lucky thing, but it was always like super precarious. Like it would, you know, you'd have a steady thing for like a year and then that would go away. And then, you know, there'd be another period where it's a nightmare and then you know uh i got like a steady job at rolling stone i was there for a year and a half two years before i was laid off and then that led to buzzfeed now buzzfeed's by far like the steadiest job i've ever had i was there for like seven years or so Mm. that's awesome i mean and like really like a time capsule of like what what that was, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the the, the the internet quiz moment. Oh God. I mean, well, this has kind of come up uh, on my own timeline. Cause I'm obviously still friends with lots of BuzzFeed people, but this people like this thinking about what the internet was like in 2012, 2013, 2014. It's just so, and people were like, would complain about it. People like yeah. there was a tweet from like Matthew Iglesias about this or something where he was just kind of, I think he he wasn't really mocking it, but was really pointing out like, uh, man, people used to always complain about all these uh, Facebook just being all these quizzes and uh, memes and stuff. It's like, certainly better than what it became, right? Like mm-hmm. once like yeah. Facebook was like, oh, we got to clean this up. We got to make it more serious. Everything it just became like a propaganda machine, full on. Yeah. So yeah, maybe you guys all deserve like, should give us a you know a nice little apology. I certainly feel it, um, but but at the so, same time, it's like there's like there's like a there's like a, there's kind of a, a tweeness about that era of internet mm-hmm. uh, from like maybe like tw- 2011 through 2015, like that now can also be sort of nauseating when you kind of approach like the way it still exists in culture in, in ways. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. <laughs> well, how did you start writing about comics? Now, uh. I think that I don't think I really ever wrote about comic stuff until I was at BuzzFeed and there was a certain normalization that had happened. Like I mm-hmm. definitely did a lot to not really mention comics 
uh, publicly for a very long time because, you know, I mean, I definitely grew up in a time where like that was the very uncool thing I was into, even if I was yeah. into like the cooler end of it, it didn't really right. matter. Right. Um, or I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to be associated with particular people. So it was always kind of like this thing that I kind of kept in the background, yeah. uh, like semi closeted, I guess you could yeah. put it. Um, and like really leading my identity, uh, my cultural identity as being a music person, um, but obviously this a million things changed uh, by the time like uh, the last decade began and it was just a little easier to do. And I mean, I, I had definitely been in like some like message board situations where, uh, where, where comics were a topic. So I think mean, particularly I was, uh, in Barbalith or around the oh, early yeah. aughts. So for fo- folks who don't know, that was the message board for the invisibles. Yeah, more or less. I mean, it was kind of a whole other thing by the time I got to it. Like the Invisibles, I think, kind of ran its course maybe in the in the first year I was there. So it was kind of mm-hmm. a whole other thing. It was just more like a an artsy lefty cultural group, and uh, you know, like maybe like sixty mm, percent British. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sad. I like missed the entire message boards period of everything, but I realized also I missed it because I like lived in New York and like did things. <laughs> so I have this complicated feeling about the fact that like, wow, I'm like super active in comics Twitter for all the problems that that includes. Um, although it's also been wonderful. It's like basically the only way I ever met women who liked comics. Like I'm not even joking. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, it's like there was this like super intellectual message board niche thing. Barbie Luth, like it just sounds like, oh, that's everything I want. And like where I wasn't even there, you know? I don't yeah. Know. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I mean, I definitely got a lot of my like really hardcore internet stuff out in my 20s through message boards, through, through Barbalith and the ILX, like I love music, I love whatever. Uh, mm. Those message boards. And uh, I think then also like maybe a little bit of like, live journal but by the time i'm 30 or so i really have just kind of like cycled through all of this and now it's just kind of like more of like an arm's length like you know i i I use twitter and things like that but i i don't really i i I don't really feel like i'm part of like particular communities it's just more like people that i know from different groups um i think like since uh the jonathan hickman x-men thing started i started following more people who are kind of like x-men twitter people yeah but i kind of look at that stuff with you know some degree of (sighs) some degree of remove for sure Mm -hmm. and a lot of these people are also very young and like yes they are like their connection to comics and the way they experience this stuff is so drastically different from how I ever have. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate it in a lot of ways, but sometimes it's like, oh, all right. That's, you know, that's so, you know, following like, like, you know, like uh, young women who are like really into like, like fangirl thirst stuff, which is like, like that. I, it's just never really, I just never really thought of these things in those terms, you know, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of ways that people consume things. And I don't think they're necessarily things that didn't exist then, but they just weren't like something that you could just kind of come to naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's just a lot of ways that people engage with the stuff that I find both super interesting and, you know, funny or amusing, but also in some ways like sort of alienating. And sometimes that alienation can be 
uh, annoying, but I think for the most part, it's just of like an intellectual interest to me where it's like, oh yeah, I, I appreciate all these different ways of going into this, but also recognizing like, this is how I relate to this stuff. This is how I always have. And this also through the prism of being a person who's been doing critical writing for a long time. Like the way I approach these things are just very different. And ideally, like I would be, particularly with the the House of X project that I have, uh, just filling a niche. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I definitely don't combat a lot of the stuff with the same even like there's really the same critical agenda. Like even if there's like a lot of like crossover in politics, I don't, they wouldn't like be articulated in the same way. Right. Uh, Like, and also like when I write about art, I really am focused more on artists than uh, certainly than I think, well, comics and superhero comics in particular is where this would be like a really, harsh uh divide where like you would be like people who are like super invested in characters Mm -hmm. and creators are just something that happened to characters whereas Mm -hmm. i really care about creators yeah Uh, and i mean i certainly like the x-men have like an investment x-men going back certainly a lot longer than a lot of these people have been alive but it's not the same thing i've i've read x-men through periods where it's just dreadfully awful and but i don't really have like the same sort of connection like they have done cyclops wrong mm. i just wouldn't have that i would i would, I would kind of look at it more like they have done like this broader thing wrong or mm-hmm. yeah um i think there's a good example of this pretty recently was uh the story the empire x-men miniseries and that kind of approached uh the scarlet witch and uh wanda maximoff and the thing that I found really interesting in that is that you're seeing this character who is traditionally an Avengers character, but she's in an X-Men story. So she has to be what she is to the X-Men, which is because of stories that had huge impact. She's essentially a villain. And like, she Mm -hmm. actually was introduced as a villain uh, by Jack Kirby and Mm -hmm. Stan Lee in the early sixties. So it's like not a huge turn. It's just kind of like what, she, but what she is in this context is not the same thing as in other contexts. So people will be like, well, right. why, you know, why are you ignoring all these adventure stories where she did this X, Y, or Z? It's like, well, they're not X Men stories, hmm. and the X Men story has to be about the X Men, right? Right. No, the and the split about like viewing it through characters versus viewing it through the creators that you follow is h- huge. I mean. I I didn't read any Hickman at all prior to the X-Men relaunch. And oh, no so yeah, yeah. So for me, I kind of ended up in the X-Men relaunch because um I mean basically because Stephen Atwell was like, Elena, you should read this. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, but like I and even though I identify as an X-Men fan as a like I, X-Men were my comics when I was like getting into comics as like a young teenager. But um, I hadn't read X-Men in, like, really for, for a long time because I just good, follow the creators who I follow. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry? Pa- good for you. The past, like, five years or so were really, really bad. Well, more, I mean, I don't know. Like, more than that. But, like, it was sort well, of like... I, I, oh, I like the Bendis era well enough. I feel like there's eh, good stuff in that. But, yeah. Eh, oh, boy. But, um, but I was going to say, just, like, the point, of the point of which being, like, so then I came into X-Men not you know, for the one thing I came into, like not actually from following the particular critic. And so, I mean, writer so or artist. So it has been interesting to see like this like co- whole cohort of younger folks who, and I really appreciate X Twitter in the sense that 
Um, it's this very active online community who are talking about a con- who are talking about the work, right? But they're definitely a lot more approaching stuff from like a character standpoint in some cases than than I would be. But I also can't talk about certain things as being oh, this is quintessentially Hickmanian because that's not a writer who I have that depth of knowledge about. So it's been a really strange uh, place for me to be hanging out right now. Um, and but one of the things I, I really do like about it though is like you are. I, I would say one of the reasons I would suggest to people who are really nerdy that they should get into reading the X-Men books now is that you can be a part of a very active conversation about a book that's like driven by what's happening in the book now. And uh, the people talking about it are a diverse, like they are tended to be young, but like, it's like so many people who aren't men, so many people who aren't cis, so many people who are people of color. It's like way more diverse. And like, who wouldn't want to jump into that? That's like a really exciting place to be able to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think, I mean, it speaks also to the subject matter. So it's like, they finally made it. So like, I mean, I think a lot of those people mm-hmm. were already fans, but I think the yeah. the content speaks to them more now. Mm-hmm. Um, Rather than it being subtext. Yeah. There's one girl who I follow um, where it just seems like everything is lining up specifically to her interests lately. And it's like, I'm just so happy for you. Like the Ten of Swords <laughs> stories. It's like, it's like they just got together. Like what would make her so hype? Like it is out of control hype. And yeah, like things like that. This, I, I, I really, I like seeing people I like happy in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I would say, like, out of all of the cards that Hickman has laid out on the table for his whole X Men thing, like the stuff that Ten of Swords is hitting is like the stuff where I was like, well, at least we're getting this over with quickly because it's like probably the, my least the stuff I'm least engaged with, like the Araco mm. and Apocalypse stuff. Mm. Um, but I'm, I, I I'll probably enjoy it more through watching these other people being super excited. And like that, that, uh, that enthusiasm is very contagious. So what are your favorite things that are happening in the, uh, what are your favorite books in the current era of X-Men? Well, the Hickman yeah, stuff by far, like I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. there for him. And like the other books, uh, are kind of on a spectrum of, uh, I like it a lot too. Yeah, this is fine. It's better than anything that's been done in the, the past several years. You know, so like the baseline level of quality is quite high. So mm-hmm. like there's nothing I would say I don't like that's in the line. There's just some that are like just because it's a continuum, some things are on the lesser end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess like the, the Fallen Angels uh, wasn't very good, but Fallen <laughs> no. Angels, as I understand it, was also extraordinarily rushed. Mm. And Brian Hill was also very busy with other projects. So, you know, yeah, so, I, you know, so, I mean, Fall, Fallen Angels kind of gets a pass. It's just a mini series. They needed product. I understand them needing to have product. So, um, but it, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, also a totally inconsequential story as well. So hmm. whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, there's some that I, I've liked more as they've gone along. Like uh, Jerry Duggan's Marauders has definitely yes. won me over as it moves through. Um, yeah. I, I think that he kind of picked up a lot of really good lessons from Claremont that people always say they want to do, but he actually does. Like in terms <laughs> of like narrative momentum and how the story kind of rolls out of character and his investment in the relationships between the characters. Um, one thing I really appreciate about that book uh, relative to a lot of other X-Men comics that have come out certainly in recent years is that the cast of the book is very intelligently put together because they're for Mm -hmm. the most part all characters who already have like very deep histories together Mm 
Mm-hmm. And like a lot of the story is about those histories without necessarily having it be like about continuity and referencing back to those stories. It just mm-hmm. becomes the subtext of those of the his stories. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, one of the writers who was on it before, um, what was his name? Mark Guggenheim. I, 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 I really hated his run. Just like viscerally Good hated for you. it. But yeah. I read every, I read every page of it. Um, but yeah, he was almost kind of like the opposite where he was really trying to roll back the clock and put together this cast of characters who'd had a history, but like, they just didn't really like fit together. And it didn't really fit together with like that kind of history that had happened between, uh, books from the eighties and books now. So it Mm. just kind of felt like a non sequitur and he would use characters in ways that made no sense, like Callisto. And he had Callisto as kind of like, uh, a nemesis for Kitty Pride, which made no sense because they don't really have that connection. But Storm is in the same book, and Storm and Callisto are like they were designed to be nemesis. Of each other. Like, like they're kind of like the Wolverine and Sabretooth right. is one thing, and right. like Storm and Callisto is the other. Um, but yeah, it's I, I appreciate seeing Callisto written well for the first time in ages. Woohoo! Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also by some, and, and drawn by people who like understand, and this is something we talked about. I had like an entire episode of the show about Marauders, like drawn by someone who actually understands like what queer women type folk vaguely find hot. Yeah. Like it was like, oh, you're not trying to like cater to like, I'm sure there's tons of het guys who are like, oh, she's hot, but like, they're not catering to the catering to the heterosexual male gaze for her. They're like, oh, right. This is like a character who's like based on the look of Joan Jett getting back to music again. Yeah. And like, we're going to actually, in there. and yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're like actually going to understand that. I'm like, thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, like when you think about like Chris Claremont's run on it, like when he traumatizes Callisto, it's by making her a beautiful, like heteronormative woman. Mm-hmm. Like yep. her ultimate nightmare is being this other thing. Um, yeah. I, I remember like at some point, like, Maybe Scott Lobdell, when he was writing it, he kind of like misunderstood that story and got the opposite <laughs> uh, oh, read on no. it, which is not surprising. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like Scott, 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 oh, man, because I've written about Scott Lobdell back issues a couple times in this, and I try not to really engage with the stories about the the creators. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's like now known to be a pretty creepy guy who's done mm-hmm. some like pretty terrible things. But he's a good X-Men writer on the whole. And he's definitely, I think I did not appreciate him at all in the time those things were being published. But I look back on them now, it's like, oh, yeah, this guy actually understood a lot of things about what made the Claremont comics work. Hmm. He, he, he had his own things and he had his own, uh, I mean, well, he's basically the character, the guy who made uh, Iceman gay uh, or, or really making that subtext and bringing it to the front before it could actually be stated in the in the books um he he definitely had like he definitely did some progressive things but there's like you know (laughs) that guy's a complicated guy he's he's he's, he's almost like you just don't even want to deal with it in some ways um but yeah like he's definitely like the main architect of that whole era like i think uh, even ahead of uh, Mm -hmm. fabian nisiaza um Oh yeah, because he, because he did, because he did it longer too. So he had his <laughs> fingerprints are on the whole era as opposed to just a part of it. Right, right. We we ha- you and I were sort of messaging about different differing opinions on Fabian Nicieza. Like 
the other day. He's always just kind of like okay to me. There's not really like a lot of his stuff that I like. I really like a lot. There's elements of him I think are pretty cool. I it's funny. I, I think like I, I kind of like him better uh, on X Force stuff than X Men. Hmm. Because I think X Force kind of gave him like more space to. Uh, kind of deal kind of like a uh, build up characters and he also had a kind of more of a sense of humor comes through more on that stuff uh yeah i, I think like when i when i think about the fabian as stuff i think about the, the sheer amount of his run that is dedicated to making psylocke more complex than she needed to be in terms of like her relationship with well he i mean he creates uh uh, oh god canaan like i remember reading recently like the proper mm-hmm. pronunciation of that but now i've forgotten it but uh yeah quanon is how i've mm-hmm. always said it but that's not apparently how you're supposed to say it oh, um yeah i was I, wrong I, I i look it up some somebody pointed out that like the actual pronunciation of it should be one way maybe it's canon or something uh, you're not. I think the W is, is is silent. Maybe that's what it was. Um, anyway, but yeah, like, and he kind of like the the, tra- the Psylocke's transformation into the Asian ninja thing. He really complicated that more than it needed to be. Like or, or originally, it was just kind of a mystical transformation, but right. he made body it a body shot. swap thing, and that is like made Psylocke more confusing and more. I would say more problematic uh, because this having her transformed in thing, and then you could just transform her back, but having her become this person who is in, literally colonizing their body not not of her own volition no i mean but i mean yeah. i have very complicated feelings about psylocke uh, I see. because psylocke's definitely one of my favorites and i find that part of the story to be interesting and a good vehicle for kind of approaching a lot of very complicated topics and you know psylocke is currently now two characters like the, the the asian ninja and now she's also captain britain uh mm-hmm. as the, the as betsy braddock that's like the main Psylocke character um but and, and i appreciate that being done and i understand why but i but i feel like a thing has been lost to some extent because i really liked that being this complicated part of her and like the guilt that comes out of that and uh also like i I really like the rick remender's uncanny x-force and like all Mm -hmm. the main characters in that book were people who had had basically been victims to people like taking over their bodies and transforming them so like Mm -hmm. wolverine archangel uh phantom x deadpool all of them were either created or had been transformed in some way and i really like that metaphor of trauma Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's one of the best X-Men comics ever, actually, that uh, mm. Rick Remender run. It's so good. And like, I, it, it also, it's kind of a big theme for most of Rick Remender's writing, but especially in that one, the idea that violence is just this cycle that just begets more and more violence. And like, and the whole overall plot of that story just being like the terrible, terrible ramifications of one bad idea. Right. Right. I actually just recently was reading it for the first time and I, it is really great. Yeah. Lots of really great artists on that run too. Like his Jerome mm-hmm. Opeña, who's just like an outstanding artist. For real. Were you always a big Psylocke fan or did you get into her through that book? No, I mean, I've always liked Psylocke a lot because Psylocke was one of the main characters, uh, 
through most of my childhood. Mm-hmm. So like the, the Australian era is kind of where she really is like a, a, one of the main characters. So she's kind of always around. I think like, you know, maybe through the night. I mean, X-Men in the 90s is generally is kind of like a thing that I'm reading, but it's like backburnered for me because I'm more interested in other things. I'm just kind of keeping up with it. Uh but yeah, like my enthusiasm isn't quite there. And so I, a lot of my enthusiasms, particular characters come out of usage of the characters right. and like what mm-hmm. and how prominent they are through like longer periods of time. So mm. like Kitty Pride, for example, Kitty Pride is written out of the X-Men pretty much as I come in. Like I right. only Same. read Ex- Excalibur sporadically. Uh mm. So I didn't have like a deep connection to that. So Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride are basically like non, they're, they're kind of like side characters at, at a, for most, for a solid like, so like 86 to 98 or so, like they're just really yeah. kind of like marginalized. And that's a very long time. And it also co- coincides with like the commercial peak of the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, I like Nightcrawler more just generally just because he looked cool too. So <laughs> Nightcrawler has one of the best designs ever. So mm-hmm. that that goes a long way. Whereas Kitty Pride's just like a white girl. It's like okay, yeah. cool, you're a white girl. <laughs> well, it's, and sometimes they remember that she's got like some frizzy Jewish hair, and sometimes yeah. they forget. But yeah. whatever. Yeah, that. Yeah, it's. Oh god, I mean, it was just the same as like there's years and years where Psylocke was an Asian ninja, and people would just kind of like draw her with like no particular ethnicity they would just kind of forget that Hmm. she should be drawn as an asian woman but you know yeah i mean that's one of the problems of just having a million different artists right having to draw these things it's just like some of them get it some of them don't some of them you know they bring what they bring to it um i know like one thing that comes up like here and there i think just happened again on x twitter like last week maybe is people talking about colorists and like how colorists will get like the characters wrong or off or whatever Mm -hmm. um this being particular to uh monet uh penance uh and the people have been screwing up the coloring on her pretty much the entire time she's existed in comics so like since 1995 Mm -hmm. um she's moroccan so she's i think like the idea is that she's supposed to be kind of a light-skinned black woman Mm-hmm. And how hard a time colorists can have with that. But I think also like a lot of the reference materials, like, oh, well, she's kind of colored like a white lady here. Or she's it's like, it's, I think it's very confusing just to look at like source material, reference material. But then I think the whole other part of it is just like knowing what I know about comics and the production of it. And like one of my best friends has been a comics editor for the past like 15 years or so. So I have like a a good understanding of how these things work and coloring is done at like the end of the process of putting together a, a mainstream comic and often is done like super, super fast because, you know, it's it's uh, basically compensating for everybody else missing deadlines. So like the I'm like, my friend kind of pointed out one time or it's kind of like the um, the human centipede is kind of basically a metaphor <laughs> for what happens when one person is late in comics. So if the writer's late, like the colorist is usually the last one in mm-hmm. that chain or, or maybe it's the letterer. But one or the other, like those people are like are in the end of the process. So those people are often very rushed. And because they're very rushed, the editor maintaining that is rushed. And there's and if things are have to go out the door, I think, it, you know, if there's a real rush on getting it printed, if it's been late for a while, 
you know, the things don't come to as much scrutiny and there's not really much time to change things. So, you know, there's, there's a process reason for these mistakes as well. And sometimes right. it's, it's, you know, you can, you, there's definitely like systemic reasons for it, but uh, in, in terms of like a, like broader cultural terms, but the system that probably is more to do with it is the actual system of making the the product. Except there is a very clear fix. So, you know, Desiree Rodriguez, who's like been on my show and I've, I've interviewed her about this. She's an, she's a, an editor over at um, Lion Forge. And she's like, well, when we were developing the Lion Forge, like superhero world, I was like, well, we should have color guides for the characters so that yeah. they don't like migrate towards whiteness. And people were like, that sounds like a good idea. So they made color guides to keep the characters from migrating towards whiteness. Yeah, style you guides go a long way. <laughs> you and could just do that. <laughs> I, I want. I have to assume there are, because I mean, I just know from like, just like design guides and stuff like that, there are style guides, but I don't know how prevalent they are. And also... They're just, they're, they're just really not. Like, but, also, like but, but also when you have like the sheer volume of characters that now exist, it feels like, the person who had to maintain that style guide, I, 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 I don't know enough, but I'm speculating here. But I wonder if they even have the budget to have a person be on top of that. Because my guess is, especially the way things have been at Marvel and DC in particular in the recent past, where it's like mm. the, the the amount of slashing they're willing to do, it just feels like that's probably something that uh, is like, well, it'd be cool if we had this. I mean, and I've, and especially because I've worked in media for a big part of my career, and I know exactly how these things go in different ways. Where it's like, okay, yeah, it'd be cool if we did this, uh, but we don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the budget for it. Like, even just in my my last job when I was at BuzzFeed, like all the things that trying to do that fell apart for reasons like that. There are other things where, um, to, like, very similar sort of checks and balances on on like race and stuff like that, where there'd be people who just on top of their work would be handed yeah. this, uh, this, this uh, burden of having to look at other people's work to make sure it wasn't racist. Like there, I mean, this kind of came out uh, a little while ago, but like when I was there, there was like this era where uh, the video department was just like constantly making like kind of like low key racist videos. And there had to be like this kind of a, uh, group of uh people of color they're they're kind of convened to be the firewall to like look at that stuff before it was published and like not their job they had other jobs Mm -hmm. but you know (sighs) all of these all these things are all such a mess and they're like they always put the money in not always the right places yeah 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 um so are there uh, comics outside x-men stuff that you're reading right now Oh yeah, there always is. Um, God, what what am I reading though? Because my brain goes blank when I get asked questions like that. Um, oh, you know what I really like is I really like this book by uh, what's her name? It's like, is it Michelle Lovett? And Brian Azzarello is the writer on it. But I'm really there for her art, Maria Lovett. Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. And I it's called Faithless. And there's another book that she had uh, called Loud. I just really like her art a Ooh, lot, so I, I'm kind of happy to beautiful. just kind of follow her around. Even if, like, the the stories aren't necessarily my taste, I just find her drawing style so oh, appealing. She worked on, um, she worked on, we were, you were, uh, we were never really, I, I had, 
she worked on a book for Black Mask, and I'm forgetting the name. And it was it was pretty. Oh cool. yeah, yeah. Her 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 book Loud is on Black Mask. Cool. Yeah. It just it just came out like maybe like a, a month ago. Yeah, I've I've also been kind of like really rereading and also reading for the first time uh, a lot of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips stuff. I just kind of got Woo-hoo! in the zone on that. Uh, and I've, I've been reading that stuff for a long time and, you know, it's, it's, neither of them is new to me, but just really just kind of concentrating on it and particularly seeing like the, the world they made with criminal that I don't think was always apparent to me reading kind of piecemeal. Um, yeah, that's, that's been very exciting. And also just kind of seeing like the, the level of consistency that they they both have, like the, the worst they ever are is still very good. Did you read Pulp, their most recent? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that that's, I think that's part of what kind of kicked me into that direction of just revisiting it all. Because I owned like a majority of the books, but not all of the criminal books. So some of those are the ones I'm reading for the first time. Mm. But um, yeah, most of the stuff they've published in the recent past, like Killer Be Killed and Fatal. Um, yeah, I mean, I got the, the Fade Out. Like I, I, I got oh, God, those I as they came out in trade form. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm definitely going to reread Fate's Hell because my memory of that story is very vague at this point. Um, but Killer Be Killed is probably my favorite of his stuff. Um, I all, That one also has just truly amazing colors. Um, I mean, that, that's another thing uh, that they... They work with such great colorists. I think that I think Killer Be Killed was the last one they did with Betty Brightweiser, and the new one is Sean Phillips's brother, and I'm forgetting what his, his brother's name is. But um, like beautiful, beautiful coloring in ways that were like, man, I wish more things were colored like this. Um, like the All My Heroes Were Junkies. We're that junkies, book yeah. has like beautiful colors and like, but also has like this really like pastel tone to it all throughout. I really like the decisions they made for the palette of that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got. I'm in the wrong room of my apartment to do this because all the stuff's in the other room. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, I read. I read, I read a lot of uh, indie stuff, and like, there's. Yeah, I mean, I I, I read the the Bendis Superman Legion stuff, and that's like fine. Uh, the Legion actually is very disappointing to me, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, as a person who is like very gung ho to have Legion stuff to read again, because mm-hmm. I, I, I have a huge uh, soft spot for the Legion, even though like Legion comics are kind of hit or miss, um, depending on era. But like, I, I don't really like the way he's approached to it. It's kind of like all the worst elements of his writing, but none of the best. Uh, so, you know, Legion are already a book where you have like 30 plus main characters and his approach to it is to like not serve any of them except for Superboy, who could just be in any other comic. Mm. And it, that kind of drives me crazy. So you have all these characters and and they're also like all radically redesigned by Ryan Souk. And those designs, some are better than others. And there's some elements of the redesigns I I'm cool with. Like I, I quite like that, you know, they actually went back and made some of the characters not white, for example. Yep. So, so like lightning lad and light lasts are now black. Uh, Cosmic boy appears to be Asian, you know, th- things like that. I appreciate, but then I think they went too far towards making some characters like look like super alien and, or, uh, hmm. or just like, their costumes and their general look has nothing to do with any previous version of them. So 
you cannot like visually know who the characters are just by looking at it. Um, that's hard. And so, yeah, there's like, a, I would say that's the bigger problem. I'm a, like the characters who have had their races changed are still recognizable as themselves. Mm-hmm. But a lot of characters who are just like fundamentally redesigned are, are largely unrecognizable and, and I think also in some cases are over-designed, so they're probably going to be a pain in the ass for other artists to draw. To have to draw. That's really insightful. Um, that Yeah, I totally get that. I haven't been reading it, but that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. it's. I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, I could see like someone coming on after this and kind of like getting it more where it ought to be. Because um, a lot of like the appeal of Legion is also just kind of like in this uh, world building and the world building has been weird or like he's just arbitrarily changed things. And it's kind of like... <sighs> I understand, like, wanting to revamp things. That that makes a lot of sense. But I think sometimes people, when they revamp these properties, don't have the right idea of what is cool and what is fixable or changeable. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the Legion is a good example of that. And I, I think also because Legion has, like, this weird distinction of being rebooted many times over to the point where <laughs> it's now just kind of, like so far away there's just too many versions of it and like that there is like the baseline of it is hard to discern i think like the obviously like the 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 legion that existed for many many years in print and kind of up through the mid 90s like that is all one continuity all one group and that to me is the baseline um like the certainly the 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 giffen and paul levitt stuff that's like the to me, and I would say to most people, that's like the the main thing. Uh, that's like when it was most successful, for sure. Um, but one of the things that they do that I don't love is like they will overemphasize the teenager part of it. Mm. Whereas if you look at those most successful versions of it, they're not teenagers. They just were teenagers. So like most of like the very popular... Uh, Levitt's and Giffen run through the 80s. There's kind of like in their early to mid-20s, they're young adults. Uh, they've been at it for a while. And that was... I, I feel like that resonates more than being actual teenagers in some ways. I like the, the idea that this is a, a, a society, an organization that's been around for a while, and there's dynamics and history to it. Like, that certainly is more interesting to me. And, like, the, the version I like the most is, like like some time after that and like there is no legion just people who used to be legionnaires and i've the idea of these people who are now in their 30s uh some of whom are still true believers and some of whom have become horrible sellouts and some people who have just moved on with their lives you know i think like there's something about that that resonates with me a lot and i think like sometimes that kind of comes into x-men stuff a little bit but i was about to say yeah yeah, but the idea that, like, people have, like, this thing that happens in their lives, or this community they're part of, and how they relate to that community, um, like, that resonates with me a lot. And I think just the idea of, like, a, of a large group dynamic is interesting to me. That's certainly, like, an X-Men thing, for sure. And, you know, when you look at the what Jonathan Hickman is doing with the X-Men now, of making it, like, okay, 
it's it, it's it's a it's a vast community of people. It's not like a team of superheroes. It's, it is just a community of people. There's a governing body. There's people who have certain roles in it, but it's about community on this macro level. And the whole story is basically about like, well, what happens when we actually try to unify? What happens when we actually try to make something better than uh, just like fighting amongst ourselves, you know? And I, one of the things I really like about how he's set up the story is you have all these characters who are traditionally villains who are now, you know, not necessarily played as villains, but like you see Mm -hmm. how he's planting the seeds of them being antagonists. Uh, Mystique uh, has like the storyline where she has like a very, uh, justified resentment towards Charles Xavier and Magneto that's eventually Mm -hmm. going to boil over. You know, you have like Mr. Sinister, who's always like the scheming, conniving guy and like the seeds have been planted and you're just kind of waiting around to find out how he's going to screw everyone over. You know, I I, I like that kind of thing where you're kind of playing to the types of the characters and what they should be, uh, what they should be to a narrative, but disrupting the idea of like superheroes versus supervillains and more about like what happens within any community. That is like, that is really insightful. And I also think one of the questions that folks have with the true for Legion or X-Men is like, were you in it in the first place because you were interested in stories about superpowered teens or was that not the most important piece of your interest? I've never really liked stories about teenagers. (laughs) Because that's funny, because, you know, the X-Men began as being, like, teen superheroes, right? Yeah, but it's it's in the past. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. even, like, when people... uh, X-Men doesn't become popular until they're not teenagers anymore. Right. And that's why they brought in new teenagers. That's why they brought in Jubilee. And then then they're always in a rush to make those characters not teenagers anymore, because teenagers are really overrated in cultural terms. (laughs) Teenagers are good for certain types of stories, but people ultimately want more than that i think or people a lot of stories about teenagers are actually stories about adults uh just you know as teenagers basically Mm -hmm. uh with with the the imagined uh benefits of being a teenager uh like certainly a lot of like tv shows are like that where like right. you know like like uh, like like the OC or Beverly Hills Nine Two where they're just basically like adults who just happen to be in high school, um, like the, that that's a whole thing. I think like Brian Bendis writes a lot of teenagers. He really gravitates to them, and I I think he actually tries to write teenagers like actual kids, and the sort of like certainly when he writes uh, Miles Morales for example, mm-hmm. and it is about being an actual teenager and the actual pressures on an actual kid. But I find, especially in comic books, especially in comic books, that when people want to write about kids, they're always, like, super idealized. Or it's, it becomes very twee and cutesy in ways I find sort of nauseating. Yeah, uh, and that teens and probably The, st- the stuff about teenagers that I do like, it really is more about, like, what teenagers actually are, which is more confused and messed up. I mean, I, I think, like, the, the way Chris Claremont wrote New Mutants, for example, is, uh, you know, he... They they weren't like all like totally messed up kids, but like they had like real things going on. You know, you you have multiple characters who are basically metaphors about different forms of trauma that an actual kid 
would have in their lives. You know, like uh, magic, Ileana uh, is whole metaphor about sexual abuse and then you know wolf spain being more uh coming from like a repressive religious family Mm -hmm. background you know things like that where it's like those those resonate more or like or i think like karma like her whole thing was like she was slightly older but still like had like a lot of responsibility thrust upon her having to basically be a parent to her siblings and that's yeah. a thing that happens in life, mm-hmm. you know, but I think you kind of go through it. A lot of things now or like, it's just more like this idealized uh, thing. And I find that a lot of times like comics creators and you know, comics fans to a certain extent. Um, it's more like this idea of like, what would be the wholesome thing for the, uh, represent, representing something to my kids? Cause I want my kids to read these things. And it's like, <laughs> and like, if you want kids to read something or to get engaged or something, it, very rarely will the super wholesome thing be the thing that connects. I think yep. that sort of fantasy of wholesomeness is more for adults. Yeah. I mean, like you were reading X-Men when you were a very, very little kid. And I was reading X-Men when I was like a teenage, young teenager, but certainly did not have the sense that this was supposed to be for adults in the slightest. And like, that was fine. Um, I, I, you know, reading things that were clearly intended to be for teenagers were like, teenagers don't want that. When you were a teenager, did you ever like, want to be a teenager because i felt like i ever since i was like a little kid i always just wanted to be like an adult <laughs> yeah i think i think everybody kind of well i shouldn't say i like i definitely like, like yeah i want to be like i want to just sort of be like college age basically and and maybe you know like a little right after that um yeah no it's not like because when you're a teenager you still have to deal with the boundaries established by your parents and you still have to go to like a school where they make you do math and shit like that, you know? Yeah. I think this also speaks to our age cohort too, because I think there really is a a harsh turn in the late nineties. But through like the eighties and especially through the nineties, the idea of what a cool person was, was definitely someone in their twenties. It was a young adult. Um, And all the marketing was around that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so all the stuff, when I'm a teenager, when I'm like 12 to 18 or so, everything is about how these people older than me are cooler than me. And you just want to be one of them. And there really is a turd in the late nineties towards all of the marketing being towards teenagers and having teenagers be the center of stories. All, everything kind of comes from that. And there's lots of super cynical reasons for that. There's lots mm-hmm. because, you know, you, you open up your market, especially at that time, because you're dealing with the, the millennial market, which is just vastly larger than the Gen X market, just by the sheer quantity of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, if you always sell down, it trickles up. And if you tell people that they want it, they have to be younger, it creates all these other pressures. Uh, that I think, you know, now you look at culture, you, know, you look at millennials who basically have spent their entire teen years, their entire youths being told that being a teenager is the best possible thing and being old is the worst possible thing. Yeah. And like, and, old, and you see and like how, pe- you see how they react to teenagers now where mm-hmm. it's like this mix of like this kind of psychotic optimism, like the teenagers will save us mm-hmm. or like, oh, the teenagers are so much cooler than me. I'm so scared of teenagers. Like you, you, you have been broken by this culture. <laughs> I agree. I absolutely agree. But then also, I mean, you also have a generation 
you know, like our, our parents' generation of baby boomers who don't know that they're old. And they don't have to be old the way their parents were old. Lord knows, like, you know, they could still out bench press some folks my age. But, like, yeah. the fact that they don't realize they're old is kind of, like, not conducive to keeping them from getting COVID, to be honest. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Right. I mean, that, that's, that's, like, the, that's mm-hmm. like, the, the extreme example of it. Uh, but I think, ultimately, age and how you present age-wise is a decision that you make on some level. Where, mm-hmm. you know, like the decisions you make about your lifestyle, of how you do things. There's definitely people who I know who are in their 50s and like basically, you know, in the most responsible way, like basically live like they're 30 indefinitely. And yeah. Because you, I mean, I'm, I'm, sur- I'm sure in some ways that's basically me too. Right. Um, I was going to say like, hi. Yeah. Okay. But it's like, <laughs> it's like what you engage with, like, do you wall yourself off from younger people or no? Uh you know, how do you maintain your health? There's lots of things where it's like, oh, it's, it's a lot of decisions. And, or um, do you have children? Children will yep. age you yep. Yep. pretty yeah, dramatically. And, and and the the, the level of uh, all the commitments that come out of that and the responsibilities come out of that really change how you live your life. And, you know, I, I've, I don't have children. And mm-hmm. I think, God, my, my sister does. My sister's two years younger than me. And, you know, she has three children. They're all like uh, nine or seven. There's th- there's two of them are twins, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and God dealing with schools right now and all yeah. of the things that go with it. Like my sister is just like completely overburdened, and my sister has yeah. like a full time job where she manages lots of people. So this all there's. I'm just so grateful to not have to deal with having children right now because it seems like this is like one of the worst times to have children. I don't, yeah, I don't know if I think it's the worst time to be a kid, but I think it's definitely the worst time to be a parent. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. And and then you know I think uh, another piece of it is when I was a young person, you know, getting into the goth scene, I was really eager to have friendships with adults who'd been in the scene longer than me. I mean, I I, sh- I was working on a documentary when I was in college that was like about folks just a few years older than me from like the DC punk scene, um, talking about like stuff that went you know stuff that went down in like the in the eighties basically, and I I really like was interested in cultivating those relationships. I wanted to know that history. I wanted to know what happened in the scenes before me. And it seems like there's a now it's uh, I I want to be able to be that resource for younger people, but I don't think younger people are interested. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, hmm. I want to tell you all about what shit was like in the goth scene in the 90s. And, you know, there are some people who are, and I love the young people who yeah. are like, Ilana, tell me about, I'm like, well, but um, it feels like it's less of a, I don't know if like, if you, were you involved like in a scene or were you more interested in like, were you no, sort of solo music I, I've, I've, okay. I think I've kind of, I, I have a real non-joiner mentality. So I've really mm. avoided like subcultural identities through a lot of my life. And I think wow. only, in the, only okay. in the recent past have I only been like, okay, you know what? I should probably signify more things visually, you know, just in wow. how, I, like, how I dress or how my hair is, things like that. I, I think for the longest time, I really, really rebelled hard against like having that kind of subcultural identity. And I think that did me no favors, you know? Yeah. Like, it, you think about how all the ways doing that helps you, like well, with dating, for example. I was about know? to say. Because it's, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's like branding, basically, yeah. you know? Yeah. And like to yeah. resist that branding is to make yourself confusing or boring to people mm-hmm. it's on, a, on, a, uh, on a snap judgment basis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that the 
I don't know if I would redo anything, but you know, that's certainly something I did growing up. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. But do you find like as, as an actual, like I write music criticism, but you're like an actual professional music critic. Like, do you find that there's younger people who are like interested in like seeking out, like, finding out about oh like, yeah i mean there's yeah. kind of a there's a pretty constant churn and there's always like mm-hmm. a, a churn of new writers coming in um i think now it's it's funny because like people coming in now are kind of on the other side of things where like when i was coming in we're like oh yeah like being doing this professionally is extremely difficult but maybe i can just do this on my own like I am, though I have had a career in doing it professionally, like my real investment and the vast majority of what I've done is independent. It is on my own. I am a solo act like, or I have my site mm-hmm. and my own thing. And I, I really want more of that. And I've been kind of trying to do my best to put a spotlight on how much independent music media exists. Like uh, a few months ago, I was, kind of in the collecting process of uh, figuring out like what exists. I want to make a directory. So I have to make the directory. That's a whole mm. other thing that's annoying. <laughs> the actual I, making I, of I have things. something I need to send you information about and then after this, after this. After yeah, this but like but, I, um, I, but I just want to help people, well, one, find things, but also mm-hmm. just be aware. Like, no, there, this is, there's more of us than them. There's more people doing this independently than there are people doing it professionally. And I don't think there should be a qualitative distinction between these two things. But Mm -hmm. all I see through my entire career over and over again is that both the people who are writers and the people on the audience, there is something that happens where when people understand that something is not being done for money, they they see it as hobbyist. They see Mm -hmm. it as not as legitimate as the things that are done uh, for money, which the the thing that drives me crazy is like the things that are done for money are much more likely to be compromised a million ways uh, and to be less legitimate in in a lot of cases. So if I can do anything to push people towards getting back to the sense Mm -hmm. that people doing things on their own, making zines, making podcasts, making websites, making whatever it is, like that's also the other thing, like in doing that collection of realizing, oh, there's a huge spectrum of things that qualify as this thing. Whereas, you know, when I came in, it was basically just like you do a blog or you do a collective website and that was basically it. Or maybe you do a print zine, but that was definitely like super waning in the early aughts. Oh, by the early aughts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I guess, and then also there would be kind of like, uh, you know, kind of independent print magazines. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a broader spectrum now. It's the the level, the, the barrier for entry has never been lower. And I just think that people need to kind of like recognize that this is important. And especially as you see how badly things are going in media, like how all of these things are getting destroyed one way or another. There's only like basically two solid major publications at this point you know as far as being like big picture big money ones like pitchfork and rolling stone 
And yeah, my friend at Billboard got all my friends at Billboard are laid off. Like, yeah, and but but then there's also like things like Stereogum. Where Stereogum is now mm-hmm. fully independent. It's to me Stereogum is the best one. Stereogum does so much stuff that's good. Tom Bryan does uh, the the charts thing where he does he's doing all the number ones. He's currently in the mid '80s, and I love his columns so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's called the number ones. And uh, Tom, yeah, uh, yeah I, I see, t- I, I feel a certain kinship with Tom. I've only, I don't really know him. I've only met him a couple times. So we don't really have like a, a relationship, but I really see a lot of, you know, I think we write similarly. We have similar interests and, you know, we've both have been doing it about the same amount of time. So like a lot of those, the stereo gum people, I feel like a real kinship with. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, Pitchfork and Rolling Stone are kind of in very different zones right now, too, because Pitchfork uh, is owned by Condé Nast. Uh, All the people who founded it are long gone now. And it's basically just like the music vertical for Condé Nast and anything that really was guiding Pitchfork for a long time, any kind of identity is, for better or worse, gone. I I think you can argue pretty solidly both for better or for worse. Um, like for the better, I think that, you know, it's certainly much more uh, covers a broader spectrum of things. Uh, it's definitely more inclusive than it had been. But yeah. I think that the identity of it is just like barely there. The, the only thing I would say that the part of the identity that has been kept is like a certain seriousness about how things are written. Um, and but Rolling Stone, I think, on the other hand, uh, is no longer owned by Jan Wenner, and I can't remember what media company bought it off the top of my head. But it's, I think, it's been rejuvenated a lot in recent years, and they have a lot of really great writers who've been there a long time, and some people who are newer, like Britney Spanos. And I feel like Rolling Stone has done a good job of like building up new star writers. Like they have an investment in having star writers. So you know, Britney Spanos or Susie Exposito, they get to yeah. have more and more. Uh, responsibility and they get to be out in front and they get to do cover stories, things like that. Um, I think that they have done more to kind of push things forward than, than Pitchfork, which has no interest in having star writers that there's a certain anonymity of brand. That is very true. So, so even if Pitchfork has all these great writers, like the audience doesn't really engage with them as such. It becomes a lot more interchangeable. And I think that, there's there's more value in in like being like you know what screw it we're making Britney Spanos a star, right? And she deserves to be a star. She's fantastic and tremendously charismatic, but they still have like Rob Sheffield. They still have uh, Brian Hyatt, who's a, I think one of the best features writers. And I don't really like features very much, so that's a very big compliment <laughs> for me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 I having been an alumni of both, I, I think Rolling Stones in the better place. Interesting and, and interesting to hear, you know, I mean, especially also because like historically like women have been really kept out of anybody taking like their critical work seriously with a few like key outliers, basically. Yeah. I mean, I think that's changed a lot in the past 10, 15 years for sure. But I hope so. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of like the most prominent writers about music for the past 10 years or so have been women for sure. But it also so. still seems to me like most of the stuff they want women covering is like women music, though, right? You know, I don't know if that's really the case anymore. 
I, I think that probably was for a while. When, when I think about like like who are like the big star women writers, like Amanda Petrasek, who is at the New York, uh, sorry, the New Yorker, like she just does whatever she wants. Like most most of them just kind of do whatever now because they just kind of ascended to this level where you know, they're just kind of seen as, like, the fine China writers. Like, you know, mm. I'm thinking about also, like, Ann Powers, who's been around for a very long time, uh, Lindsay Zalads, uh, Maura Johnston. Maura like, Johnston these, is amazing, Like, yeah. they've, these, these are writers who are very long established now, but then there's also, like, younger writers, uh, certainly, like, Brittany and Susie. Like, I don't know. I, I think it's... I, I, I kind of view this more optimistically, and maybe, you know... Maybe my my point of view is skewed somewhat by I pay attention to some of these people more mm-hmm. than other people. Uh, I mean, other than other writers that maybe I don't know. I, I think that you kind of see a division in how like the the prominent male writers work versus the female writers. Or I think the the male writers kind of have moved more, to, and I probably include myself in this as well to some extent. Have moved more towards history and repackaging the past mm-hmm. whereas i think the women writers focus more on uh narrative in the moment that sounds true and also probably explains to someone who's more interested in packaging the past why i don't see as many women getting to write the stuff that i would be interested in having anyway enough about me and my problems um <laughs> i, I want to thank you for joining me and for and for like really being able to go deep in the space of talking about criticism and comics and where where it comes out um i've definitely been a huge fan of your work and i'm encouraging all of my listeners to follow what would be the best way for them to find your spotify playlists oh i think if you just go to my site fluxblog.org you can kind of get to everything else from there so that's probably the best way to do it um mm-hmm. Otherwise, I mean, I guess you could look up my name on Spotify, uh, Matthew Perpetra, mm-hmm. and you'll probably find everything, but I can't guarantee that. <laughs> but but uh, this is just but, a but tremendous to everything I've folks. done is on my site, fluxblog.org. Oh, and that was with one X? One X, yeah. Awesome. And uh, folks should all be following you on Twitter as well at Perpetua. That's spelled like the font, right? Yep. Yep. P-E-R-P-E-T-U-A on Twitter. Uh, is there anything you have coming up that you want to plug? Uh, well, I, I, I have some stuff coming up. I don't know if I'm ready to like announce it yet, but I, okay. I, I'm kind of building towards kind of like some next level stuff with Fluxbug because I've been thinking about how to evolve things for a while. So I'm not really like getting rid of anything, but I'll be adding, I'll be adding more things. So like, I think the, the playlist element has kind of been a thing that I've kind of layered in mm-hmm. and I'm going to layer in some other things. Gotcha. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to it and really thankful to see like someone who I think has a similar sort of approach to looking at criticism and also at the music genres and how race has been used in these ways. Um, so so thank you for your work and, and thank you for joining me. And if you ever feel like there's a burning desire to talk about something comics related on a show, I, I hope you'll join me again. Of course. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, um, stay tuned. There will be uh, Doom Patrol. There will be, um, we're going to be doing some additional work around some old school Daredevil comics. We're going to have an episode trying to help folks understand how to get into tabletop gaming. I think a lot of folks who never played before are really looking at it as a stay at home, socially distanced activity. And 
are hungry to figure out how to be able to get into it. And we will hopefully answer those questions for you. And for me, you can ask me my questions, including asking me what music you should listen to at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's me on Twitter, Elana underscore Brooklyn. Um, and uh, as we like to say, keep it geeky. <laughs>